Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. I'm having this conversation with a lot of women my age who are cool and funky, but like, we want to reinvent ourselves, but does society let us reinvent ourselves as we get older? You know what I mean? And it'd be interesting, like, do they let guys do it easier? Or are they just like, oh, you're you're old, you're still pale and male, so go on, go to the glue factory. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Welcome back to Curious Creatures, where we have Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke, and it's part two of our very lovely conversation with her hold on to your seats here we go how long have you two been best friends for 40 years really well we sort of met each other in we had a big gap yeah we had a gap we had a gap yeah budget could tell you the story it was 79 we met each other on on, on uh, the join hands tour was it instantaneous though like you're my like soulmate or did that take time it took time that came second time around mm-hmm. that came i suppose once we re reacquainted when I, I was passing through. And then <clears throat> or, or it very quickly became that. Yeah. <clears throat> because we'd both had a life experience that was so mm-hmm. it could we could have been we could have interchanged quite easily, I think. Yeah, it was absolutely it's like the connections, like, you know, I'll say something and he just goes, Oh yeah, that and and he knows exactly. And so it's the identifying we we've lived the same life. Oh, and we both play drums. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We did that as well. But but he but he's the king of drums. Yeah. <laughs> but also, Lo, I think though too. This is something going back to not living in America, and I don't know if, if Budgie feels like this living in yeah. Berlin. But last time when I was in Santa Cruz, I stayed with my best friend. I've known her since we were eight years old. And her husband came, we were just having breakfast and her husband came in the kitchen and he started singing a jingle from a commercial that was played on the TV probably when we were like 10 or 11. And I just burst into tears, you guys, because it's a language. It's those cultural references that you, that I are, has created the quilt of my mind and how I view the world. And I can't use those here with a lot of people because they don't know what the hell I'm, I mean, why would they? They're not from that moment. Yeah. Budgie does that all the time. <laughs> we talk in our, our own secret language, and it's, yeah. it's TV yeah. jingles from the 1960s. Exactly, exactly. Like, and, and catchphrases and stuff like that. 
So that's really that's really what it is. That's our connection, you know, that we we speak the same language. You know, it's it's like, you know, if you think about a, a good friend you have and maybe you don't see him for a few years and then you meet him again and you start talking and it's as if you never stopped talking, you know? Oh yeah. That that's the same thing that me and him have, you know. That's that's why it works, you know. Yeah. And uh I think it's a mutual admiration society, Aww. which is good. You know, you want that in your friends, you know. That's a moment where Dan fades in some really nice kind of soothing music. <laughs> <laughs> some strings. Some lo- lovely, lovely romantic strings. Yeah, but, you know, that's really, that's really like, me and Budgie talk about this a lot. It, this was really why, you know, The Cure started, because it was a band of friends, you know, and that's what it was. And it was a way, for me, it was like a gang. You know, that I was in a gang because my family life wasn't that great. I had no connection with my father, really. So, you know, this this is like what it would have been if if we had gone along that more pure path. Let me put it that way. This That's the, that's the relationship that me and him have. That was definitely a point. Yeah, but that's that possibility model thing, though, because you probably didn't have something else to see. How are you going to how are you going to get out of your situation and how? I don't know. It's just, I don't think you can ever chastise yourself for that. I think that that's, I hope that you don't like, why did I not, why did I not keep it pure or whatever? Cause that, that's, do you guys remember um, like until probably about 20, probably until 15 years ago, even there was when I was heavily working at a record label, it was like, I don't want to sell out. I don't want to sell out that whole idea, like selling out. And, you know, and I used to yeah. tell people, I'm like, the thing is, is you can either not sell out and live in your parents' basement or sell your music to be played on a TV commercial and actually may may get the nice toilet paper that night instead of having to use the yeah. one ply, you know? So I think it's so hard because music, music and commerce should never, art and commerce should never merge. That's the problem. Right. I could throw in, I could throw in eyes, eyes on medicated. Oh yes. That's yes. Right. Right. Very rough toilet paper. Yeah. Um, multiple you can use it you can use it to like scrub yourself as well as wipe yourself yeah right yeah it's like a salt scrub yeah Yeah. you know the idea of the starving artist in the garret is is kind of pathetic because you know you can't think about anything except starving if you're starving you know you're not thinking about oh i've got a great tune here but you know i haven't eaten for four days um you know so at some point you have to Mm -mm. have your own value i think me and Baji only realize that later on in some ways, our own value, you know, the value of ourselves. Yeah. Still, as, as you mm-hmm. said, Jennifer, mm-hmm. it's like still right. trying to realize right. it, really feel the size of it. You know, it, it is. Um, and what's the strange thing, I suppose, is how as you become more comfortable with it, that without you having to self-promote in any way, you you have validation. It just comes to you. You seem to attract that in a very healthy way, and that's a, that's quite something to. Because my, my the voice in my head is going, "Oh, you're just saying that, you know, you're just being kind." So it it still the thoughts are still there. We just don't listen to them as much yeah i mean that's that's really you know the the point of the point of us doing stuff together is actually therapy more than anything else you know
so interesting too about that whole thing of becoming something else is both of you are beyond music it's beyond songs it's about it's beyond being icons it's something so huge and in, in some ways you could say yes you both were commercially very very successful but on the flip side mm. you guys still have that mystique about you now even you know 40 years later after when you right. first started right and i think that's such one thing i think about bands now is i i can't see there being any staying power i mean I'm 50 years old right. and I've loved both I've loved both of you and the the art art that you've made for most of my life. You know, since I've been almost I mean I started buying records when I was 9. So for right. almost my entire record buying life I've been a fan and I mm. don't that makes me worried about where music's going in the future in terms of is there going to be that longevity of artists creating culture. Does that make sense? Cuz you guys created culture and a way to look at the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think perhaps because you know, and, and maybe this is a contentious statement. Maybe it's not, but I I you know I talk to a lot of people, obviously like our age, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, lot, sometimes people will go, oh, there's you know, there's no good music around now and stuff, mm-hmm. and I say, no, you're wrong. You just you just don't know where to look anymore. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you've forgotten where to find it you know so I, I call my son up and i say hey tell me what's what's good what's happening you know because he's got his ear to the ground about all that so it's still there i think what's happened is that the way of getting it out there the way of of valuing it has been devalued that's it devalued that's it because you know? mm-hmm. to us to us when we start you know even when before me and budgie started playing it was everything yeah you know, you followed music because that was your religion. That was your life. You know, it wasn't anything else. Nowadays, you know, okay, well, it comes with my phone, and uh, and it comes with you know, you fill up your car at the gas station. It it comes on the little TV screen there, and there's music. You know, and it's like it's not really valued. It's valued by young people. You know, because my son just did a nationwide tour, and I went to a few of the shows, and I see people that they they are the people that were at the club when I was at the club 40 years ago, they just, mm-hmm. you know, they've got different names and they're a lot younger, but um, it's the same people, but I don't know. It's become divorced from, from the, the idea that we had, which was like, you know, it was a revolution. You know? I want, I wonder too, if that's the physicality of it being taken away from it yes. too, because yes. you know, we had, I had a guy come over a couple months ago to shoot a documentary with me in it. And one of the cameramen was like 22 and he had never bought, I mean, he's 22, never bought any sort of physical format of, of any sort of music. Right. And only he even thought Spotify was too expensive at five ninety nine or whatever it was for a student. Yeah. Um, and I was just, he, he didn't, he came in my house and there's just like books everywhere, records everywhere. Yeah. And he's just, he couldn't, understand the need to have those physical things but the physical things ground me and define who i am i mean don't you guys remember when we were kids you'd go over to well maybe a boy's house but i'd go to like a boy's house and i'd be like if you don't have these records you ain't getting any of this good loving you know what i mean and <laughs> yeah. <it's>, there's not <laughs> that's how you judge people it's like by that you know I went to art college. I, I, I knew I still do. I, I, 
I followed careers and yes. when do they paint that? When yes, do they draw yes. that? You know, but I didn't own anything. I had a book or a reproduction, yeah. but I went on a kind of pilgrimage to Sheffield to go and see an exhibition. So I went to New York cause I was able to get there mm. in between bands, if you like to see Lucian Freud's uh, new exhibition uh, with his new gallerist in New York. I knew where Marlborough Fine Art was in, in, you know, off Bond Street, wherever I'd go down there and see Auerbach. All these people were like Francis Bacon's world. And, and th- I, 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 and I passed Francis Bacon in Knightsbridge in Kensington. I, yeah. I used to kind of go to Harrods in the whole... real person? In the hope of, yeah. And we passed in the doorway. I was going for my coffee beans and he was coming, coming out. out with some coffee beans. I don't know. It was just one of those Saturday mornings. There was no painting. There was no paint. There was no... It was just recognition. There was one of... You know when there's eye contact with somebody you know really well? And... A world flicks by in like two beats. It's just, right. And I thought, wow, that was who I thought it was. Yeah, just to kind of follow the the thought, I suppose, is we didn't physically impossible. Couldn't afford a, a, a David Hockney drawing if I wanted one, but I could get a book with a print in it, and the book might have cost some money. Music never had that. Uh, mm. We, you know, the original masters were owned by. Right. Sony, Universal, whoever it may be that holds them now. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Endless reproductions, but were sold as the real thing. Is that what the music industry is, was? Mm -hmm. Um, The art industry didn't play that game. Well, actually, no, they do, don't they? They, they, uh, Thousands of reproductions. Yeah, do lots of prints. And if you were Dali, you just signed a piece of paper and had people print on it. Yeah. So when I first moved to England, I had this huge student loan and there was this art exhibition. And what I real and the and I I found out about this exhibition after it had been going for a while and they only I called and I said, Is there anything left in my price range? But mind you, my price range was my student loan. So it had to be I had no money except for the student loan. Um and they yeah. said they said there's one piece that the person might be pulling out of the sale. And I said, Okay. Okay. So I went and bought this thing. And I realized after owning it that it isn't about owning it. It's about the mythology and the ideas around it. It's not about the actual thing. Does that make sense? I'll show you what it is. It's a pen and ink by Sylvia Plath. Oh, wow. She, yeah, she, okay. had, she did like tons and tons of her work. And her daughter sold all, like, I don't know if all of it, but a majority of her work. So I, I went and I bought that. And I don't know what I thought. I don't, not that I thought that like owning that would change me. But I think there is something about that, especially like if I own this, is it going to get me closer to Sylvia? I mean, I don't, my mind didn't work like that. It was just this obsession with, I had to own something that her hand had touched. And you see that in those, you guys experience this all the time. I'm sure like, you know, Budgie touched this drumstick. Yeah. You don't realize this, but you've just gone up about 200% in my estimation. Me? Because me, yeah, me and Plath, uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna read about it in my new book as well. So you know, but it's well. Like, you, yeah. I've done like tons of Sylvia, not tons, but I've done several Sylvia Plath walking tours. I've read, you know, all pretty much every book about Sylvia Plath, and I love her writing, obviously. But I I love them, and this is what I really realized about myself buying that. I'm like, I love the story. 
I love how sad the story is. I love how she becomes this huge figure much. I mean, it's weird because you guys are kind of the, on the other side, like you are still this huge figure, but it's, you, you were living with that entity. Like she, right, you know right. I mean? and she was dead way before anybody even really. Yeah. 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 And so it's just, it's interesting to me. And you guys probably see this happen all the time. Like I, I've seen this happen. Like I worked with Nirvana when I was first in the music business and you see how people have changed what and who that was into something else. Like before my eyes, the history, it's like some weird sci-fi movie. The history is evolving. And I wonder like, what would, would Sylvia Plath be esteemed if this, if she had lived? No, I, I really don't think she would. It's no. Isn't it like, you know, what would Jimi Hendrix be doing? Well, Jimmy's too too old now, but you know what, what, what would Kurt, Kurt be doing now? I can know? I can tell you what he would have been. I can tell you what he'd be doing, right? Because I went to see the Isley Brothers, right, with Ron Isley, like two years ago. Ron Isley taught him, you know, Hendrix pretty much, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, and Ron Isley's still playing all that stuff, and he's awesome and that. But he's playing, you know, the little theatre down here on uh, Wilshire Boulevard. Mm. That's what would have happened to Hendrix by now, unfortunately. My first moved here, and I know you've probably been there tons, um, Budgie, for living in, in, in France, but when I went to Père Lachaise, of course I had to go to Jim Morrison's grave, first of all. And um, I'm obsessed with 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 like uh tourism having to do with cultural figures and the jim morrison i find fascinating for two reasons one is i went to the grave and as you guys probably know there's a camera on the grave 24 7 there's like a fence around the graves you can't even get near it and there's a guard and i'm sitting there as i'm a huge doors fan like i love all the everything around the doors and there's people there going okay i just like of course mostly stupid americans hate to say okay i'm checking off jim morrison he's on this graveyard map oh saw him who was he i think he was like a, a chef or something well i've seen i've seen his grave so it's like yeah it was right. he'd be he'd gone beyond yeah. his own importance it was just like to see his grave and they had no idea but the thing about his grave that i love there's yeah. a woman that was american when jim morrison died she left america to be cl- close to where his final resting place is and every year since she, he died she's documented his grave and the evolution of the grave. I just think it's so fascinating. Wow. And of course, uh, Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir are just round yes. nearby. So yeah, good. all the big buggers are there. They're all there. And then, and then you could you could drop down into uh, just below Montmartre and go to Les Deux Magots and sit in the the corner where. In La Copole, yeah, we used to we used to go there. We got poisoned. Did by you the, uh, oysters? I remember. Simon, Simon, oh, Simon no. was thrown up very badly. Yeah, um, but they're beautiful, you know, beautiful red banquets and stuff to sit in. Yeah, um, the thing about that cemetery, I went there in like when we'd finished pornography and the band, the band sort of split up, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to do something else for a while. So I had a French girlfriend at the time. I went to live in Paris for a year that year. And I met a couple of bands, and I produced an album by a band called The Bonapartes there. Um, they lived right ne- next to the, the cemetery. So we went for a walk one day, and there was all these um, graffitied signs, Jim, this way, oh, you Jim, saw this those. way, just, sp- just sprayed on, on, on other people's gravestones, like all over. And when we got to the grave, there was no, there wasn't a fence there or a camera yet or anything, 
but there was about 30 Italian mods sitting on top of the grave. I remember <sighs> that. And there wasn't even a grave there. It wasn't even the, the bar marble bust or whatever. There was nothing, you know, but it was like, it was obvious it was his because there was bottles of wine and stuff, you know. This this is bringing me into, I had, I had one question. I've, I've not asked uh, Jennifer. That I, I did have a little look around, and I, but I came across these things. I came across the tragic Gothic heroine and dark tourism. Mm. That's was the, there's a few things we've touched on already. I mean, like, but, but you're asking me about dark tourism. I mean, the thing that really got me thinking about it and got me really interested and hooked on it initially was a childhood fascination I had with World War II, because as a little kid, yeah. I just and you guys probably. Uh, you know, being closer to a little older than me, like it was, and being British, like for me as a kid in America, it just seemed, how could this have happened? Like, I just remember not understanding that. Yeah, right. And so as an adult, um, I started reading about how, you know, Auschwitz had been turned into basically a tourist attraction. Yeah. The structures were not made to last. So do you rebuild this? Mm. Do you, but then you're changing the way that you're changing something that's historical. It's not authentic. It's that whole idea of, authentic and how what is the real and all that kind of thing and I, that I found really fascinating especially if you contrast that to what's happening now with fake news and all that kind of thing it's it's an, an interesting kind of a road to go down well there's no I, the greatest center of dark tourism must be where I live yeah, yeah. very much Berlin is was flattened there was all that was left were the the walls of most of the buildings if they were there at all um, but we're reminded every day as I walk down the street, uh, the cobble streets contain brass cobbles right. with the names of the, 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 the Jewish people that were taken from their homes. And it doesn't say, you know, vanished, disappeared. It said taken out and murdered. Yeah. And this is under your feet and you can choose to step over or not bother to look. Yeah. Um, and there are many places around the city, many places where there's a, graphic and uh, detailed description of what happened on that spot in that building uh, at this doorway. And one of the things about being here for me anyway, is that my dad fought in a war yeah. to uh, obtain some kind of um, balance or peace or whatever. I don't know his, if he had his own reasons, but um, that it's kind of, he gave me the right, the ability to come and live here in Europe, anywhere. And very much I think of him when I'm walking around thinking, I, I'm raising a family here <laughs> because of what you yeah. you put out there for my generation. Because yeah. it was, it didn't make Britain any easier, but it changed Europe. Yeah. It would have been a very different place. So. That's a profound story. I like that. Coming from the Second World War, when we were growing up in England in the 70s, I didn't think of it as being bleak and, uh, you know, despondent but it kind of was and there wasn't a lot of anything around so part of the reason that any of us started making stuff was just because there was no alternative there wasn't like oh well maybe i'll go and do this sometime and spend a few years doing that and that no you know it was like if we don't do this you know our, our life's going to be terrible you know so we've got to do something I met Catherine Mannix in, in um, 
Peru in Arequipa, and and she writes all these books about how it is to die. Oh wow! You know? And she's English, yes, and um, she's about our age and stuff. Anyway, she told me a lot of things. We had a nice chat one night, and um, you don't need to be scared. None of us need to be scared about you know it's going to happen, and it's and it's but it's a lot easier on the people that are going through it than the people around. You know that's that's her basic message. You how know? does yeah. how does she know about death then? Like how does she get this info? She she was like one of the top uh, doctors studying that for like the last fifty years or something. You know she's been she, and then she decided a few years ago to start writing books about it to make people less worried. You know. It's funny because after Hunter died, that's my friend that was murdered in San Francisco, it made me, and it came on the heels of watching my grandfather die of cancer, like literally wither away and then die in yeah. front of me. Um, it made me not fearful of death. It made me fearful of not doing while I'm alive and having regrets. That's what it made me fearful of. I've been out here in almost 30 years. Last 30 years, I've done more in the second 30 years than... I did in the first 30 years, even though that was a lot as well. It's like, is it ever enough? You know? You know, I, I, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, when I left France, and I, I, I think even as we're, we were going through the divorce uh, and everything, I felt I should, I should head for L.A., I, it was it was the place I knew that I I had friends and I could go there and hang out and I did. I spent quite a bit of time in Los Angeles, starting off like couch surfing until somebody gave me the keys to their apartment and the car. <laughs> and it's funny in moments of almost desperation where you, where you turn to and 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 actually you're not making a decision. It's being made for you. I thought I was always going to be over that coming to where Lolly's. And every time I tried to, everything else pulled me in the opposite direction. And I tried to leave music as well. I mean, I didn't do anything for musically for four years until my friend in Brighton. As soon as I moved to Berlin, I got a call from Ben Watkins, Juno Reactor in Brighton, and he says, come play drums with me. And I went, Next first gig was in Paris. I think we did one, one day's rehearsal in Brighton, off to Paris. And you're you're bitten again yeah that's the thing isn't it you get the bit between your teeth and you want to go with it all again yeah not that i thought i was gonna die but i never envisioned myself being probably over the age of 30 mm. you know what i mean and right yeah and yeah. when i look at you guys it's like you guys as progressive when i say progressive i don't mean Meh! progressive i mean <laughs> yeah. people that are changing culture and blazing a trail there's yeah. no one really for you to look up to and go, okay, that's someone I can kind of model myself on. Uh. And I, I'm having this conversation with a lot of women my age who are cool and funky, but like we want to reinvent ourselves, but does society let us reinvent ourselves as we get older? You know what I mean? And it'd be interesting, mm. like, do they let guys do it easier? Or are they just like, oh, you're you're old, you're still pale and male, so go on, go to the glue factory. You know, it's a it's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's I think it's change. It's going to change this generation because I I don't see like I see, I see people you know, like women like my niece and stuff that are not going to put up with 
that happening to them at a certain age and yeah. going, well, you know, you're not relevant anymore. I don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, I think it's changed and changing, which is good. I, you know? And I mean, so. not to not to keep on big upping Susanna Hoffs, but I have to big up Susanna Hoffs because yeah. she's someone for me that she had been working on her fiction book for six years on her own. Yeah. And then someone like one of her friends who's a well-known writer said, you have to turn it in. And yeah. she like very reluctantly gave it to an agent and at age, I think 63. And it just, to me looking up to her, it's like, you're someone, again, someone I've like looked up to my whole life and to see you as a, and kind of similar to you guys in terms of what's it like you're fun. You know what I mean? Like you're not serious. Like you have, you have a persona and you're yourself outside of what people think you are. Like that's kind of how Sue Susanna is on like mm. her social media okay. and to see that and then see, see her, have this whole other career. It's been so important for me. And, and I think that that's, even though you may not think you're doing that for other people, you probably are. You're doing it for me. You know mm. what I mean? Like looking up what to see what you guys are okay. doing. Okay. Well, that's, that's good then. What I've really learned is I need to, I need to get in the cult of Lowell. That's really the takeaway <laughs> lesson from yeah. this, <laughs> this <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> I'm bringing out the t-shirts next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always I, I was listening to, uh, to your podcast earlier and 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 you just said something like I hope to see you all again soon or see you somewhere soon and love and best wishes and, and I and I, I realized you were a person that we were gonna have a just not not be able to stop talking to yes it's been lovely thank you Jennifer take a dike no, thank you. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor. And I just adore and love you guys both. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate Producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital Marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and Logo Design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music Production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.